everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers, Odie Martinez. Odie Martinez. Really happy to have you with us. Thanks for coming back this week. Uh, as always, I really appreciate your presence. Invite your active interaction with Odie and myself as we're speaking today. You're very welcome to submit any questions you might have through Ask an Addiction Specialist, the Facebook uh, uh, chat, uh, chat box. Are there any other means for them to communicate with us other than that? Uh, Franz Salvatierra and Austin Armstrong, my code producers. Uh, they could send us a direct message. And how do they do that? Austin Armstrong. Uh, they can send a message directly to Beginnings Treatment Center. Thank you. You can also spend a send a message ex uh, directly to Beginnings Treatment Center. So there's a couple different routes you can do that. What that does is if you ask questions or submit comments, it uh, enhances our interaction with you and it actually fills in more of the material uh, than just what it is that I've come up with, what Odie and I come up with. In fact, I want to make a couple comments about that today is that Odie's joined us in the last uh, three or four of our weekly podcasts, and the interaction is synergistic. It's like I can come in with my PowerPoint and with my ideas, but as soon as you add Odie, it's one plus one equals three. And so if you think about that, uh, it, that your input actually is additive, uh, and it's exponentially. It really adds to the interaction. I've told this story, in fact, I mentioned it today earlier to a group I led at uh, Beginnings Treatment Center, that in the days when I was teaching full-time in universities, I would, uh, I would prepare lecture notes and I would let students know at the very beginning that uh, they were going to be tested on the, the course uh, textbooks as well as my lecture material. But I would also add, you'll be tested on uh, comments that are made during our conversations in class. I call them lecture dialogues. And students wouldn't quite believe that until uh, the first exam came around and then they'd see that something that Odie said was on the exam and they went, he wasn't kidding. <laughs> and I, I say that because I always felt like as a, as a university professor that the interaction in class is the thing you can't predict. Mm. I can predict my lecture material, and if I'm just up there lecturing, and I had plenty of faculty, uh, some worse than others across my university career, including in graduate school, who literally droned on off of typewritten notes that I was pretty clear they wrote 20 years before. <laughs> it was just insufferable <laughs> to me. And so I vowed if I ever taught, I would never do that. And I've tried to stay away from that. But what I discovered is that the interaction that goes on in a classroom is infinitely uh, richer than the notes that are written in, a, in, a, in an office space with no interaction. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that same way about inviting your interactions. And I'm very grateful to you, to Odie. Yeah. Thank you. I was sharing with Odie earlier. I went back and reviewed last week's podcast, and I could just so... Um, powerfully feel the addition that you are. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was really, really Appreciate clear to me. It. So it's, it's a morale boost. It's an, in a, it, there's more energy in, in, uh, interacting for sure. And then the content for me is really enriched. And it's not, it's not just by your being here as a warm body. It's your contribution in terms of your vulnerability. It really enhances and deepens us. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I want to mention a, a book that just came out in the last couple of weeks. I ordered it, and it's hot off the press. In fact, it's still warm. Um, the title is provocative in light of the fact that we've been talking so much here about the role of shame and guilt and stigma in uh, addiction and recovery. This book is called The Upside of Shame. I try to stay up on the literature and psychology on shame. And this is the latest book. It's a book for therapists. The, the subtitle is Therapeutic Interventions Using the Positive Aspects of a negative emotion, shame being the negative emotion. And I've yet to read the book. It's still warm. I have to wait for it to cool down. But I have a couple of ideas about what the book is about. So I'm mm. going to assume 
that have a few thoughts that are relevant to the book and are inspired by what I think the book is about. So just real quickly as a review, last week we, we reviewed Restoring Hope. By the way, if you didn't get a chance to see that video, Austin reminds me that that video is available. You're an Ask an Addiction Specialist. It's available through Beginnings Treatment Centers. That's where I lead groups, and that's uh, this, one of the sponsors of our weekly podcast. It's also available on YouTube. So you can look up Ask an Addiction Specialist, Dr. Bob Weathers, and last week's topic was Restoring Hope. Uh, just as I've encouraged you to interact with me here today with what we're doing, uh, Odie and I, I encourage you to review previous videos. We have now almost 30 previous videos over the last over half a year, and there's really an archive. There's a rich archive there covering uh, kind of everything that moves, looking at addiction and recovery from a psychological perspective. And uh, that moves us into today's topic, which I announced last week. Today's topic is using shame as a signal to the self. Using, using shame as a signal to the self. So what the heck do I mean by that? Oh, there's somebody here that, that, excuse me, commented a question from last episode. This person said, they love Odie's humility in his faith. Oh, uh, oh, did we not discuss this in our last one? And it was, uh, in, they said, there are so many religious addicts. Do you think religious addiction can be biologically based? I think we did discuss this. Mm -hmm. Is that certainly, we talked about ideology addiction. Yeah. Is that the truth is, is that, let me just cite a couple of statistics. 25% of adults in America, and sad to say, this, this, these studies are with anybody over 12. Mm -hmm. So in these studies, it, the, what they're calling adults is 12 and older, which mm -hmm. makes this next number really... Uh, Sobering, no pun intended. 25% of Americans are addicted to substance, and that includes uh, psychoactive substances like uh, alcohol, nicotine, and then all the various drugs that we're addicted to. Mm. Uh, somebody brought this up to me recently. It excludes caffeine. It's quite possible to mm. be uh, quite addicted to caffeine. And in fact, I think I read 80 to 90% of Americans drink caffeine related drinks on a daily basis. So it just gets a little bit ridiculous to call that addiction, I guess, because it's just yeah. so common. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I certainly have had clients in my practice over the years that had a, a, a clinical condition called hypercaffeinism, which is just basically being completely wound up with excessive cortisol and adrenaline flowing through the system as a function of pounding quarts of coffee a day. Wow. That, that will flat out mess you up. So, But the statistic I cited, 25% of adult Americans, 12 and over, are addicted to uh, psychoactive substances, um, including alcohol, nicotine, and drugs. Uh, that, to me, is a startling statistic because I don't typically think of that, that one out of four people are clinically addicted to yeah. those substances. That's crazy. And then, as we discussed before, if you open that up to behavioral addictions, or what sometimes in psychology are referred to as process addictions, the latest statistics, in fact, I just reviewed this this last week, 91%, just over 90% of Americans, 9 out of 10 Americans, adult Americans, uh, endorse that they are they have at least one behavioral addiction ongoing now. Hmm. That's 90% of Americans. And as I tease about this, I think the other 10% didn't understand the question or were too shy to write the truth. And that's understandable because there's a lot of stigma around addiction, including behavioral right. addictions. And so under the behavioral addictions falls this previous question. I can be, I can be addicted to my political or my religious persuasion. And I can mm. pound you into submission wow. and that can make me feel good and I can get a high out of that. Mm. 
no different than somebody who gets uh, uh, a high out of gambling. We've discussed pornography, uh, uh, other sexual addictions. Uh, food addictions are not included in terms of substance addictions. So there's food addictions, all manner of food addictions, as well as, uh, and I can relate to this one personally, um, workaholism, just working mm. all the time. That makes you look like you're a good red-blooded American. <laughs> you know, what's the phrase? Oh, I'm, I'm just crazy busy. <laughs> well, just take that crazy part really literally. Yeah. Okay. It's really an addiction. It can become an addiction. And it's completely, uh, uh, it's come completely kind of missing our culture, which values self-reliance and productivity mm -hmm. to the very highest at the expense of family, mm -hmm. at the expense of ourselves, our own health and so on. So it's just to say that, that addictions, and if we include, I think what this individual is referring to with religious addictions, if we refer even our ideologies, how we can get very attached to those things, and, and uh, how you define addiction is something that you can't stop, yeah. and it's something that's causing harm. It's causing harm in your marriage, causing harm in your family. Hmm. It's causing harm in your career. I mean, so we look at it very practically. Something I can't stop, and it's deleterious to my health, it's deleterious to my relationships, it's dele deleterious to my profession, my, hmm. my occupation. Yeah. And so then you can see how that opens it wide open. Yeah. One of my favorite books, and I mentioned it recently, uh, uh, in addiction, is by a psychiatrist who I have a lot of respect for, Gerald May, who passed away some years ago. He wrote a book called Addiction and Grace. And the thing I appreciate... The thing that was most striking to me, I'd read several books by Gerald May. Um, he was the brother of Rollo May, who was the, the uh, kind of the premier existential psychiatrist or psychologist in the United States. And his younger brother was Gerald May. Gerald May uh, focused on spirituality and addiction. And in this book, Addiction and Grace, he opened up in the first two or three pages of his own ongoing addictions. And it was like two or three pages long the things that he listed. Wow. And I was just blown away. I read this many years ago, and I, and I was, would have been in no place able to do what he did, which is name all of my addictions, yeah. not just my substance addictions, but behavioral addictions. And it not, it not only did not lessen my respect for him, it did the opposite. It increased my respect for him. I thought mm -hmm. it takes a really strong individual to be able to own up um, to failings like that yeah. in the area of his expertise. So mm -hmm. I've never forgotten that. So... My way of putting this to clients is that we're all in the soup together. Mm. We're all in the soup together with this. <laughs> and so today, as we're looking at using shame as a signal to the self, let's see what we can do to open, this, open the aperture up to include all of us, because all of us deal with addictions, if, if the statistics are accurate, and I think that they are. And probably most of us have some way of keeping it secret, mm. And secrecy is an indirect indicator of the shame. I won't keep something from you if I'm not ashamed of it. Mm. And if I am, there's no way I'm going to let you know. Right. No, no, no way I'm going to let you know. Hmm. So in the spirit of this book, The Upside of Shame, what is it that shame signals to the self? And I don't know how that we can go into this without at least taking a moment to define our, uh, our terms. Mm -hmm. We've talked about shame in various ways here. I'm going to talk about something that's hot off the press coming from the group I just led at the, <laughs> at, at, at the men's group at the Beginnings Treatment Center. I asked this question, and I'm going to have to censor it because we have a mixed audience here, <laughs> and you'll sense the censoring of it. I have a pretty unvarnished approach to running groups, especially with uh, uh, young men who are in recovery from addiction. But from the back of the room, somebody said, what shame is, he says, uh, I'm a foul-up. Mm. I'm a foul-up. 
you can do the math. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then I said, okay, if that's shame, I think that's a great definition of it. Yeah. What is guilt? And then somebody up to the left of me said, I fouled up. And I thought, that's it, you guys. So I really appreciate the fact that it's spontaneous. It was profane. My view of profanity and addiction is that I think that addiction is profane. Yeah. And so I don't discourage clients talking about addiction as it is, which is dark and uh, uh, devastating and and is profane, is profane mm -hmm. by nature. So uh, I don't shame my clients for using that language. I think sometimes it takes that language to get to the depths of what addiction can be. So it's the distinction between I fouled up and there's something wrong or bad about me because I fouled up. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that gets us into the distinction between shame and guilt. So. I think that'll help us as we begin to unpack using shame as some kind of uh, upside or some kind of aid to the self, or as I call it, a signal to the self. Mm -hmm. Here's what I want to suggest today, and then I'm going to unpack this with Odie, and we'll have some exercises as we go along. And as, as is typical recently, since Odie started joining, I, Odie and I give homework assignments now. So you will be tested <laughs> on these homework assignments. So we're going, uh, we're going forward with this idea of shame as a signal to the self. And I want to suggest this, and then I'm going to try to describe what I mean by this, is that if you think about whatever your kind of cutting or leading edge is in terms of your own psychological development, your leading edge that's wanting attention, I personally believe that in some ways shame may be kind of the royal road to that. Hmm. And that's not going to make any sense necessarily unless I uh, describe that in a little bit more detail. But what I'm suggesting here is when I say that shame is a signal to the self, I mean to the deepest self that you are, Odie, the deepest self that I am, Bob, and that it may be that shame uh, casts a light onto some area, some area of my life that's shadowy, mm -hmm. that really wants attention if I'm to grow. You've given examples here, Odie, which I really respect, and I hope I've given examples too, yeah. is that sometimes the most shameful of situations or conditions or interactions mm -hmm. will be the thing that exposes something that really needs to see the light of the day if we're to move forward and to really grow, mm -hmm. spiritually and psychologically. So I'm starting off with that supposition that our leading edge, which needs attention, may be served well by shame. We have to be really careful here because the next slide talks about the poor getting poorer. And what I mean by this, is that shame in that first sense, shame means that I am defective, I foul up, wrong or bad. That shame, as, as, as I was talking about earlier with Odier, that, that shame is a quagmire. It's the equivalent of psychological quicksand. In fact, the way that I speak of shame here, and there's lots of different definitions of shame uh, for sure, the way I speak of shame here is that shame by definition is toxic. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about learning something that's helpful to ourselves, that it's in, in its natural state is toxic. So it's, it's like, how can we learn from something that's poisonous? Mm -hmm. And here's the tricky part about it, even entering into this. If, if shame is toxic, yeah. you're a failure, I'm a failure, then how could going there expose any kind of leading edge for me, especially when the risk is, if I am ashamed and I turn towards shame, mm -hmm. What's to say that I won't get sunk worse by shame? And that's all I mean by the poor get poorer. Mm. For example, if I say something to, I'm just going to make this up. If I say something to offend you, mm -hmm. I'll be talking about this more later today, and I feel bad about it, mm -hmm. then my moving towards you and apologizing is only going to be a reminder of something that I feel horrible about. Mm. I already feel like I'm in a black hole. I'm in quicksand. I'm going to come to you and admit it. No chances are I'll deny it. 
Right. Uh, I'm probably not going to be very empathic or compassionate towards you because, again, that would be getting really close to something mm -hmm. that I caused, which yeah. is your hurt, your pain. How can I commit to changing something if I did something that's unthinkable to me? So there's another, when I talk about the poor getting poorer, it's multiple forms that shame leaves us really vulnerable to getting stuck and actually getting caught in a vicious cycle. Right. So I can't admit it. Yeah. I can't get close to you. I certainly can't make a vow to change because who does this kind of stuff that I did? <laughs> and then fourthly, I think I don't think I can come to you and ask for forgiveness. Because mm. to ask for forgiveness would be to opening myself to the possibility that I did something that's unforgivable. And my shame paints me black. Mm -hmm. It assumes it's unforgivable. Yeah. So can you see the problems with that? Yeah. If I'm stuck in shame, I can't do any of those things. And we're going to talk about the difference between shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. And so if we turn towards shame, if we turn towards shame and are assuming that shame has something to offer us, we have to find a, a way to be extremely skillful managing it because mm -hmm. it can drag, drag us down, pull us down mm -hmm. in a nanosecond. And for yeah. many of us, we know that firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So the key here is that we're looking to seek hidden gifts in shame because I'm saying that shame is toxic, and what we're saying is there, there are some hidden gifts in there, mm. and you just have to trust me. <laughs> you just have to trust me for right now. And really, the only way to understand these hidden gifts is the next slide, which is we have to find a way to transform toxic shame, which would only pull you and me down, Odie. Mm -hmm. We have to, wait to find a, a way to transform that and pull out of it what I call rightful guilt. Hmm. Okay. And so if you think about what that, those clients said today, they said, Shame makes me bad, makes me a failure. I, I doesn't it, it, it makes me a foul up. Mm -hmm. We have to pull back from that and also learn that shame also notifies me that I've wronged you, mm -hmm. that I've done something wrong. And the tricky part is that toxic shame would make me wrong as a person, make me wrong. Mm -hmm. Guilt will alert me to the fact that I've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that it's only with the latter that I can move towards you. Let me talk mm -hmm. about this in terms of the brain and then we're gonna have an exercise. Sounds good. The way the brain works, right in between Odie's and Bob's ears, is the emotional center of the brain. It's referred to as the limbic system. Mm -hmm. Some people talk about this as the reptilian brain. It's a very basic part of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the seat of shame. Shame developmentally comes on board earlier in our lives than our capacity for guilt. Mm -hmm. In the first year, year and a half of life, we have a capacity to feel this feeling, which is hard to imagine because we don't have words for it. So it's to say an infant can feel shame. An infant yeah. can feel bad about themselves. And it's almost always in response to the caregiving environment. Hmm. One of the examples that a man to my right today said, he said his mom had a way of looking at him and also would utter this. She'd say, I'm so disappointed in you. And mm. it would just be killing. Yeah. And every man in that room today has some version of that, of people that we looked up to yeah. that would it could be a it could be a withering gaze. Mm. It could be a statement like "I'm disappointed in you," yeah. and you can think of every variation on that. That that an infant can take that in non-verbally and then later verbally, and it and it will cut right to the core, and it's mediated through this part of our brain in in between our ears. The significance of that mm. is that shame comes on board later, and how that's the case is that our frontal cortex, which is the seat of our uh, executive center of our brain, is the part of us that makes decisions, mm -hmm. is the part of me that cares about you, right. so, uh, social compassion, is the part of me that is able to curb impulses, mm. 
the, the motional center of the brain is like the accelerator, and anything that you want, it wants to press the accelerator down. Just go for it. Go, go. Mm. The part that puts the brakes on that is the frontal cortex, which is able to reason out the consequences if I do that. Mm. So there's many number of things during the day that we have to utilize our frontal cortex in order to make a decision that takes into account long-term consequences. That's the frontal cortex. And, uh, and finally, the, the frontal cortex is the seat of moral decision-making right. about right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So I ask clients today, I say, well, what happens when we're active in our addiction? Mm -hmm. And they all know by now. They said, yeah. Dr. Bob, we become hypofrontal. Yeah. And I say, what is hypofrontal? Because we have new clients. They go, hypo is underneath, like hypodermis is underneath the skin. Right. Hypofrontal means underneath the frontal cortex. Well, what's underneath the frontal cortex? Just what we talked about, the emotional center of the brain. Right. It's also very much connected to the reward center. So it's go, go, go. I want pleasure, mm. pleasure, pleasure. Yeah. It's, the pl it's the seat of the pleasure principle. And if you knock out the frontal cortex, which is what mm. intoxication with substance does yeah. for sure, we go, you can, you can stick me or you in a tube, get us in the middle of our addiction, and what you'll find out is the frontal cortex shuts down. Yeah, just, and guess what's yeah. activated? The midbrain is just activated. Yeah. It lights up like this. And so unfortunately, it's all go, go, go. And so that includes overriding. I said today, is there, a, is there anybody in this room that hasn't gone against your moral values as a function of addiction? And mm. it was just, it's, a, it's, it's an easy answer. Yeah. Every one of us has violated ourselves. It doesn't look like they're from the outside. You and I could be active in some addiction and somebody could say, that Bob and that Odie, those guys are really onerous scumbags. You know, they could come up with some version of that and we're acting like that for sure. Yeah. That's for sure. But that's what any of us do when our frontal cortex is lopped off. Right. Yeah. You know? And we happen to have done that to ourselves owing to addiction. And we can be counted on to be unreliable, immoral scumbags as long as we're active in our addiction. And in fact, it takes some time in recovery from addiction to get the brain to really recompensate where the frontal cortex becomes, begins to really come back on board in a reliable way. So what we're saying here is that toxic shame is a midbrain phenomenon right. and guilt is a frontal cortex phenomenon. Why it comes on later in development is our frontal cortex is developing like millions of neurons a day created mm -hmm. in the frontal cortex. It's forming. It's what differentiates us from all other species. Mm -hmm. and, and in the first three years of life, the gradient is like this. And mm -hmm. it continues on really until our mid-20s. But in the first three years, in terms of physical growth, uh, uh, language, Right. Uh, uh, social and emotional uh, development, all of that is just ramped up at, at sky high. So the and first three years are yeah. very vital. Yeah, and you don't have, you don't, and, and so all you have when you're born is a very r rudimentary frontal cortex. Right. And your emotional center, which is the, the survival center, fight, mm -hmm. flight, or freeze, right. that's way active because it's evolutionary in there. Mm -hmm. Every animal that's born, every primate is born, has it fully on board. Mm -hmm. And it takes those next years, it really takes our entire childhood for the frontal cortex to become really developed, hence mm -hmm. adolescence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's a logic to this in terms of we need to transform midbrain phenomena, call mm -hmm. it toxic shame, to frontal, to frontal cortex resources, call right. it rightful guilt. And that's the, that's the transformation we're talking about today. Hmm. So what we need to do, to put it in a different language, is separate out the wrongs that you've done or that I've done, uh, Odie. Right. Separate out those wrongs, which are undeniable wrongs, mm -hmm. from somehow making me wrong or making me bad. Hmm. 
And I asked the group today, I say, why does that matter? Is this just a semantic game? And one individual right to the right over here, I still remember, he said, he said, it's all the difference. And here's exactly what he said. It's the difference between identity and, and a situation. And I thought, that's a very great answer. That's a very great answer. Is that if something makes you wrong or makes me bad, mm -hmm. that becomes our identity. Odie and Bob are wrong or bad. Mm -hmm. Versus I did something wrong to you. Maybe inadvertently, maybe on purpose. Mm -hmm. If I've done something wrong, that's a situation that can be that can be corrected. Mm -hmm. If it's who you are, if it's who I am, like we talked about last week, we might as well just give up hope. Right. There's no hope in that, mm -hmm. and so we want to move towards looking at this as a situation that can be remedied. So let me let's move into an exercise, then you and I are going to speak together. Sounds good. The first exercise is this. Thank you. I'll get to that in just a second. In fact, let me pause for just a second. Let me, uh, there's a comment that's come in. Let me cover this and then we'll have an exercise. The comment is, it's hard to see anything good about shame, but it is a universal human emotion, so it must have a purpose. Is it for survival to keep us in our human tribes? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It's really critical. Although we're talking about hypofrontality, I guess you could have hypolimbicality or something. <laughs> I don't know what you would call it. If you take out, if you take out the survival uh, uh, instincts that are, are incumbent or they're linked inseparably to our limbic system, then you've got a very vulnerable being. It would not, mm. it would be an evolutionary dead end if we had limbidec limbicectomies. I'm trying to think how to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds accurate. Yeah, you, you, it's absolutely right. It serves us evolutionarily. There's an interesting thing that uh, Carl Jung said. Carl Jung was a psychiatrist who was the prize student of Sigmund Freud mm. back around the turn of the previous century. And he said that the work of human consciousness, of evolving morality, spirituality, compassion, and so on, he says that's a, he called it the opus contra naturum. And what Jung meant by that, opus means work in Latin, contra mm -hmm. means against, okay. contradict. Naturum is just nature in Latin. The work against nature, and what he said is that to develop human consciousness in the way that we're talking about frontality, right. it's the work against nature because nature really has one purpose, and it's for you to perpetuate your genes. Mm. The same for me. One author calls it the selfish gene. That's the, we're here to perpetuate our genetic line. And so I'll kill you if you get in the way of mine, and vice versa. If, if that's all we are, right. we're actually less than animals. Mm. And so what Jung meant by opus contra naturum is that to devolve to the next level, mm -hmm. which is to be able to extend compassion to my family, to my tribe, to my nation, to the earth, to the universe, requires a kind of moving beyond just being stuck in survival mode. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're talking about. Frontality makes me care about you mm -hmm. if you're not from my family, right. if you're not from my people. You can live on the other side of the planet, and if what I do affects you, that's going to matter to me mm. to the extent that I have well-developed spirituality, compassion, right. empathy, and so on. And that's mm. completely from cortex. Mm. And so it's way beyond just watching out for myself. Mm. Reduced down to its lowest level, and by the way, all of us start off at this level. By definition, every infant is born into the world egocentric. Mm. The first period of time of our lives, if you look at the morality of an infant, it's what can I get for me? <laughs> you know? 
And it's not a thought, it's just instinctive. Right. The limbic system is running the show. And as we begin to develop, then we begin to develop these rules. Somebody tells me it's bad for me to step on Odie's foot. Mm -hmm. I guess I won't do it. So it's a rule or a convention. That's referred right. to as conventional morality. And then at some point, I move beyond conventional morality to post-conventional morality, which is whether, it's, whether there's a rule about it or not, whether there's a police officer that's going to catch me or not, I'm not going to step on your foot. Why? Because I care about you because you're a fellow human being. Mm -hmm. And that gives you an idea of the evolution that goes on across childhood. Right. The exceptions to that, which my clients are happy to remind me, are examples of like the sociopath mm -hmm. in whom that has not developed for whatever reason, and also uh, the narcissist who really is egocentric by definition. <laughs> and so that's a scary situation, mm -hmm. not all that uncommon but not the end goal of our human development, okay, hopefully. Yeah. Right. Our goal would be to be able to connect up to one another. And if we look at it in the long term, there's actually an author that wrote about this. We're all familiar with the term paranoia. Mm -hmm. I'm paranoid about you, so I'm always got my eye up. <laughs> got a little bit of a wall up. You never know what Odie's gonna do to Bob, you know, that's paranoia. Right. And this author suggested that what serves human evolution long term, he actually invented a term, it's pronoia. Hmm. Pronoia moves me towards you. Mm -hmm. Paranoia moves me away from you. Oh. So pronoia is, is what can we do together because we'll survive better together. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for the question. Uh, this individual said, I wonder if shame is a communal emotion. Would we even feel shame by ourselves? Uh, my reading in the, in the shame literature and psychology, it's often referred to as a social emotion. But I actually like this term communal emotion. It's very much built into the definition of shame that psychology uses. Are you doing okay? Yeah. I'm yakking a lot. We're going to get to the exercise, no, yeah, I no. swear to you. But I love these questions coming <laughs> in. It's a communal emotion. And if you think about the way we talked about it last week, shame is a double-sided uh, emotion, like two sides of a coin. Mm -hmm. And the first definition of shame ties right into this idea of it being a communal emotion. Namely, shame represents a threat to my social acceptance. Mm. So if you and your friends are, are, are going to kick me out, that's a threat to my social acceptance. Right. Why would that matter? Because evolutionarily, I'm at risk if you kick me out. Mm -hmm. I'm left on my own, and that leaves me vulnerable to all manner of things. Mm. And so right away, you see it's a communal emotion, and, and, it, and it, it's actually an indicator that community is being broken mm. here. You're going right. to kick me out. And then the flip side of shame we talked about is a threat to so self-esteem. And as we talked about it last week, what deeper cut could there be to self-esteem than the fact is I can't stay friends with Odie and his, and his people? Is that, is that my self-esteem is based on my efficacy in being able to survive, and I can't seem to get that right because I'm getting kicked out of this group. And so you can see how they're, they're just really two sides of the coin. Mm. A threat to social acceptance, communal. A threat to self-esteem, individual. And they're really part and parcel of one another. Mm. That's yeah. really a more technical definition of shame. And as we mentioned before, those two components, threat to social acceptance and threat to uh, self-esteem, are correlated with the highest elevations of cortisol. What is cortisol? It's one of the two stress hormones. So if you look at what's mm -hmm. most stressful in terms of human emotions mm -hmm. to Bob and Odie and yourself, it would be a threat to social acceptance, a threat to self-esteem, kicks up the highest stress levels. And how this is pertains to our talking about addiction is that the number one trigger for relapse in addiction is stress. Mm -hmm. Does it not stand to reason that, that like a lot of what I just said, the number one stressful emotion is shame, mm. threat to social acceptance, threat to self-esteem. Yeah. So if we don't address shame, 
and don't address it in terms of needing to transform it into something more positive, that especially for individuals who are seeking sincere recovery, sustained successful recovery from addiction, uh, that we're, uh, we're getting completely hamstrung. Right. If I don't have any ability to deal with shame, I'm dead in the water. Mm. And so it's absolutely critical that we be dealing with this. One more comment. Now, I wonder if shame is different from one culture to another. Do you know if there are any studies comparing shame cross-culturally? Absolutely. Good question. I just led an in-service uh, training yesterday with the clinicians at Beginnings Treatment Center. Once a month, I meet with them. And we were discussing shame and guilt because that's my specialty. And uh, very early in the conversation, uh, one, of, one of the new staff people raised this, raised this issue. And she gave an example coming from her own background where things that are not seen as necessarily shameful in mainstream, I want to say white culture, which I'm not even sure is mainstream anymore in the U.S., yeah. is that uh, uh, there was a Chinese anthropologist that came to the United States some years ago and was asked to describe, uh, at that point, mainstream white U.S. culture. And he said, well, that's easy. They're the most self-reliant people on the planet. Mm. That is, that's the highest value. Mm. If you want to be a patriotic American, at least in that day, is to be self-reliant. Uh, if you've studied your U.S. history, the idea of manifest destiny, the idea of productivity at all costs, that's really, in, in some ways, he said, unique to Americans in terms of the extremity of that. And so what this woman was saying was that she was raised in a subculture and there was somebody else in the group that said the same thing. And then I chimed in, is that what if the highest value is family connection? Mm. Yeah. Well, now you run into a conflict because I'm supposed to be self-reliant as an American, but I was raised where you take care of your family, which is the opposite mm -hmm. of self-reliance. Yeah. It's really a communal value. There was a one woman who hailed from Japan. There's another woman who hailed from Mexico. I shared with them, I hail from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of things I inherited from my background in Texas. I certainly grew up in a family that valued self-reliance to the extreme, mm. but I was embedded within a culture that is at least very, um, uh, very committed to I guess what we call politeness. Mm. And so I still call people sir. I call you sir. Yeah. Sir and ma'am. <laughs> I still open the door for people when they get in my car, be they male or female. I still walk on the outside of the sidewalk. It goes on and on. Mm. That's so deep inside of me. And so I should, uh, as, a, as a Texan, when I, when I violate that or if I were to violate that, it evokes shame inside of me because I'm no mm. longer part of my people. Yeah. And we all carry around those internal templates for what's shame-worthy behavior. So I have something, uh, I, I told them examples of friends that I've known that are from New York City look at me as an alien life form. <laughs> <laughs> because these, these values run so deeply inside of me. I think at age, I'm, I'm turning 63 next Monday. I don't think that this is gonna change much in this lifetime for me. It's right. just in there in the DNA. But if I'm from New York City, just as an example, I may have very different DNA. It's not to say that I'll be shameless. I'll just have different things that, that shame me, that, that mm -hmm. serve shame. And so it's very much connected to, to social, cultural norms. If you want to study somebody who wrote a lot about this, I'd recommend Margaret Mead, one of the early pioneers in cultural anthropology. She did a lot of studies, for example, in uh, uh, Indonesian, Borne Borneo culture, uh, uh, New Guinea. And some of the things that just seemed cockamamie crazy from our perspective, yeah. they would look at us and feel the same way, and they probably aren't wrong. So yeah. it's just to say that, yeah, this is all very contextually based, for sure, what we're talking about. Yeah, that reminds me of yeah. uh, growing up, uh, I'm Mexican, so okay. yep. the culture is very 
machi- machismo. Okay. So right. macho, yep. you need to be a macho man. Yep. 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 And um, growing up, I would, I always heard try not to show emotion. Mm-hmm. It it yeah. wasn't really verbalized that way. Yeah. yeah. But it was obviously apparent. Yeah. Yes. Through how, um, you know, people that I looked up to, they held themselves mm-hmm. um, when they were around people. Yeah. And so growing up and then getting involved in uh like getting involved romantically yes, like having yeah, relationships yeah, yeah. it was weird because like i didn't know how to do that but yeah. obviously you start learning yeah i started learning how to do it yeah. but um and i always just think in the back of my mind how like i feel <laughs> i almost feel like uh my relatives and people saying emotions mm. why are you showing emotions yeah, yeah. but yeah. It makes me think of a line out of Bob Dylan's poetry where he says it's like going east on a westbound train, <laughs> which is kind of confusing. Yeah. It's like I've been taught not to emote, which is what you grew up with, and I right. have my sizable version of that too. Mm-hmm. And yet, in order to connect with another person in any meaningful way requires emotional presence, right. emotional vulnerability. But mm-hmm. how do I do that if I've been socialized not to do that? Mm-hmm. And if, I, if I'm if i not able to get beyond that, I'll never really know love in any deep way. Mm-hmm. And there yeah. you have this kind of, uh, Jung called it holding the tension of the opposites. Mm-hmm. How do you hold the tension of some value, for sure, in being able to manage your emotions? Mm-hmm. If you weren't able to manage your emotions, if I locked off the front of your head, you would not be managing your emotions. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. But taken to an extreme in some cultures, I think we grew up in different cultures, but probably parallel cultures in some ways, they're to such an extreme that it would actually negate the possibility of having human love. And so we have to have to hold both of those in some way. And you're obviously doing it, Odie, and I'm attempting to do the best I can too. But that's a good example of the cultural uh, blueprint, in a sense, that affects our lives. And it's very different from different cultures. I mean, there's plenty of cultures. For whatever reason, I think of the Mediterranean cultures, when I've traveled to Spain, Italy, and Greece, Everybody is so loving and expressive of it. Mm, yeah. I was not raised that way. <laughs> I like it. I think I'm Mediterranean by nature, but I wasn't raised that way. So I have yeah. messages like yours. Yeah. You don't do that. You don't do that. I don't know that I'm all that macho, but I definitely have that <laughs> rational, analytic, kind of keep your arms length kind of energy coming through these hidden voices, like right. you said, with your yeah. relatives and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody's talked about here, my favorite part of Gerald May's book, Addiction and Grace, was where he pointed out that desire is at the root of addiction. But in our attempt to deal with addiction, instead of seeking freedom from desire, seek freedom of desire, to detach our desire from compulsively attaching to things. I love that so much. Thank you for reminding us. It's been 25 years since I read the book. I'm glad for you to remind me of it. To seek freedom from desire is one way to go, but that would be to detach yourself from life. Freedom from mm-hmm. love, freedom mm-hmm. from desire. But what would it be like to have freedom of desire? It would be to desire, but to have freedom of the tyranny of mm-hmm. desire yeah. so that you're not led around by it. I really like that distinction. There's a really wonderful book that's come out more recently in the last four or five years by a psychiatrist here in the U.S. that I really respect. I've met him before at conferences, and he's continued to be prolific as an author. His name is Mark Epstein, Epstein. And this book is called Open to Desire. And he writes it from a mindfulness perspective that's rooted in Buddhism. And you could just as well, Gerald May was Roman Catholic, deeply Christian. Mm-hmm. And you could just as well, uh, uh, you, could, you could apply what uh, 
Mark Epstein is saying, very similar to what Gerald May was saying, it's interesting, they're both psychiatrists and both deeply spiritual, is that open to desire means being, the, the ideal, it gets mistranslated in the Buddhist text. They talk about detachment. That's really not the best translation. They actually, a preferred term is non-attachment. Detachment means I don't care about you. I'm right. just detached from you. Okay. Non-attachment means I'm connected to you, but I have the capacity to let go. When necessary, and yeah. so there's a. It's just a slightly different. Non-attachment is holding things lightly. Detachment mm. is not holding them at all. Yeah. And so I like that very much. That the idea would be with addiction, and we certainly can be addicted to love and sex mm. as well as any of these other substances that we're talking about. That what would it be like to keep open to desire? That is to be free of desire, have the capacity to be free of desire, but not mm -hmm. detached from it, without being ruled by it. That's all I mean by tyranny. Tyranny. Right. Anybody that's been addicted to anything, behaviorally or substance, knows what it's like to be subject to the tyranny of the substance or the, uh, the, the object or the behavior. Yeah. You, your life is no longer yours. When I, when I tell you that I can't stop mm -hmm. snorting cocaine, mm. I'm no longer in charge of that at all. And it's like, that may be fun for a certain period of time, but at some point it's ruling my life at great expense as my relationships fall away, mm -hmm. as my own integrity falls away, as my capacity to work falls away. And so uh, it, as I've talked with clients that I work with in the treatment centers and in, and in my coaching practice, there's not a one of them that says, oh, I love to party. Mm -hmm. Like uh, when, when they talk about their addictions, they say, this isn't partying. Most people don't understand that. It's not partying when you can't choose not to party. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's basically gun to head uh, <laughs> that you have to do it. It's a compulsion, yeah. and uh, uh, it takes away the partying. In fact, if you, if if the main reason that I shoot up heroin is mm -hmm. to avoid the withdrawal, or as as the addicts I work with who are in recovery uh, to avoid getting sick, it's really hard to say that's much of a choice. Yeah. How do you say? How do you say? Just say no, Bob when the alternative is going through violent withdrawal reactions, mm. I'll do whatever I can to, to keep the demons of withdrawal at bay, but I'm not getting high. Yeah. I'm not having fun. This is not fun. Mm. Thank you for your comments. Appreciate your input. Now our exercise. I think what we may do today, rather than me talking like an auctioneer, <laughs> is do this exercise and see where we are. Because we can actually split up today's presentation, which was a longer one, into a couple of presentations. If I have the permission of Odie, Franz, and Austin, I'm hoping that I do. So let's just see how it goes. I don't really want to hurry through this. And it's to give honor to your, your sharing right now. It's also to give honor to our, um, our uh, audience that's interacting. You can see what happens when there's interaction as it begins to deepen and refresh and kind of elaborate the material. And mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for whoever said great information, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I've used these slides before in previous uh, presentations, is that toxic shame, in my view, mm -hmm. it's not just my view, it's brain science view, it's, it paralyzes us. You remember that we talked about toxic shame as activating the fight, flight, or freeze center of the brain, which is mm -hmm. the limbic system, yeah. and particularly it activates the freeze response. Mm -hmm. When you or I get ashamed, we cower. We want to mm -hmm. crawl into a hole. Yeah. We shut down. When we're ashamed as kids, we want to hide. <laughs> That's a freeze response. And, and as I've shared before in slides, I'll have a slide that says shame paralyzes. And the very next slide will be good information freeze. And the logic of that is that good information moves our conversation from being reflexive from the limbic system up into frontal cortex. The information is being processed in the frontal cortex. And so it inhibits the... Uh, 
the domination of shame. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So our exercise. We just talked about how it is that we want to separate out wrongs that we've done mm -hmm. from making me or Odie wrong or bad. So this is the exercise. I'd like you to think of a time when you committed wrongs, when wrongs done by you move from behaviors into, as the client said today, your identity. That is to say, when wrongs done made you wrong, made you bad, made you defective, made you a failure, made you a foul up. So give yourself a moment just to think about this. And Odie, you, you can think about it and I'll think about it too. Yeah. A time when wrongs that we've done moved well beyond rightful guilt mm -hmm. into toxic shame, which just makes me, makes me wrong, 100% uh, wrong. So let's give it a second. Give some thought to this. If you're in the audience and have a piece of paper nearby or uh, a laptop or something, if you can write this down, I think the writing it down will be very helpful. <laughs> We're definitely going to take two <laughs> sessions for this, and I'm grateful for that. Let me share something that I'm laughing about, uh, and then I'd like to, to address the exercise. I, I, I go in uh, every Wednesday and Friday and lead groups uh, with, with uh, clients addressing a range of things from, from uh, shame and what to do about it in regards to addiction recovery to uh, talking very specifically about what happens to the brain in active addiction as well as early recovery. And uh, also a topic that we talk a lot about is how to connect up our recovery with relationships, uh, family relationships, relationships to others in recovery. So we look at the uh, attachment dimension of, uh, of recovery. Mm. That's what psychology refers to in terms of talking about relationships. And so these are areas that I focus on. And every week I prepare notes for every group session. And today I did. I inserted the notes in this book. I brought this book in. And I introduce the topic. I typically have the notes in my head by the time I've written them, but I always have the notes there in case something dies down. We always have the notes to go to. And at the end of the session today, we were laughing together because we, the, the, the conversation in the group was so vital and interactive, it really made it happen. And I looked at the group and I said, you know, we didn't go to the notes at all today. And I consider that a successful teaching session yeah. or a successful group, uh, having led a group. When I used to teach, I would write just a few ideas on the board that I wanted to guide the conversation, but it was, it was the interaction that made it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that today. So thank you guys for participating. And you too, Odie. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So uh, we're going to wrap up, I think, with this exercise. And let's just talk about it for a minute. Okay. A time for you and a time for me when we did something wrong and it blurred into somehow making you uh, not just blameworthy for having done something wrong, but somehow like worthy of being sent into the wilderness because you're a bad person. Hmm. Do you mind starting and I'll share too? Uh, not at all. Um, I think the what I came up with was... Um, Lying for one uh, to my wife. There was there was definitely a certain point in our relationship before we got married, where I was uh, I was pretty bad, and even before I met her, mm -hmm. I was. Um, I didn't lie a whole lot. I I wouldn't say that I'm to the point of a pathological liar, but it was to the point where. 
um, I would just lie about really stupid things. Okay. And um, so using that example, um, one of the many times she caught me in a lie. Yeah. And then uh, she, out of anger, frustration, she said, you know what, you're a liar. You're, you're a pathological liar. And uh, I knew I was wrong, but uh, her saying that like out loud started to make me think that maybe I am, you know, maybe I am a pathological liar. Yeah. But um, I think that's yeah, yeah. It's it's like example. when, it, when it, it it oftentimes starts that way. It'll come from somebody else's attribution to us. So you're a this or you're a that. Right. And then when they say it, especially with somebody who matters to you, somebody exactly. that you're getting married to, yeah. it goes into maybe I am that. And it's the maybe I am that that leads us to doubt mm. that it's a situation, yeah. that I lied this time. And it makes me a pathological liar, which would be somebody who can't seem to tell the truth. Right. And I gather that's not obvious, that that's not true for you. I, I, right. I know that's not true for you. Um, it'd be the same for saying, well, let me give the example that came to my mind, and it's very much parallel to that, yeah. is that... Uh, all of you who participated in previous podcasts will know this, but I got addicted in midlife, mm, which yeah. just happens to be the trajectory of my own life. And so I'd been a psychologist for years and years uh, uh, before I began to go down the road of addiction, starting with alcohol and then other drugs. And it was a gradual thing. It didn't happen just in one fell swoop. It was a gradual thing. Yeah. And then lo and behold, about 15 years down the road, a good 15 years into my career, then 15 years down the road from that, uh, I really was an active addiction mm. and was still in denial, to be honest with you. Yeah. And so I couldn't dare have anybody know mm -hmm. that I was drinking and drugging like I was. And as that came out to people that weren't my partners mm. in, in that activity, mm -hmm. there were plenty of people that s said, well, you're just a blankety-blank mm -hmm. addict. Yeah. And it was killing to me to have them say that. And mm -hmm. I was angry because, of course, I didn't want to believe that. Right. And I think it was their way of waking me up for sure. But there were those that wrote me off at that point, mm. wrote me off and keep me written off. It's right. like somehow they had me on a certain pedestal as being a certain way. Right. I had fouled that up and I had fouled that up. But then they came to a conclusion that that's who I was and the idea that it would never change. Mm. I talk with my clients uh, that I work with about this and all of them have somebody, typically a loved one, mm -hmm. oftentimes a parent, a partner right. that's written them off has given up hope. Yeah. You'll never change, mm. and that itself can change yeah. with 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 time if the individual who was addicted changes their life. But there are some people that won't change. I have people in my life. I don't know of any addict that I worked with who's in recovery that hasn't had somebody permanently write them out of the book of life. Mm. Wow. It's extremely painful. But the more painful part is the part you're talking about, Odie, yeah. which is what happens when I internalize that. Mm. What happens when I buy the hype? Yeah, that is, you know, and take that inside. And for me, at least in my experience, it was that that was so difficult for me. I got to where I couldn't look at you or anybody else without thinking that you were thinking that I was a big, fat A, mm -hmm. big, fat addict, which would be indelibly, like, tattooed to my forehead. Right. So every time we talk, you're thinking, oh, there's Bob the addict. Mm -hmm. And it really caused me tremendous suffering. I wanted to die. It was so painful, mm. so sh sh shameful, literally. And it wasn't just that you might have said that. It was that I was saying that to myself. Mm. I got to where I couldn't see myself as being anything other than a pathological liar. I couldn't see myself as anything other than a hopeless addict. Mm. And, and as we talked about last week, and if you didn't see last week's presentation, I hope you, you will, 
this idea of restoring hope is essential because yeah. the one thing, as we talked about, the one thing that's in common about everybody coming into recovery and more largely everybody coming into psychotherapy, the one common denominator is they've typically given up hope on themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so if the therapist or the recovery coach or the group isn't able to reinstill hope, then all is lost. Yeah. And this way of talking about toxic shame, where we're labeled and then we label ourselves, is a way of looking at hope being lost. There's yeah. no hope for you because you're a pathological liar. Mm -hmm. I'm a pathological addict. And so we have to find some way of holding what of that is true. You're not disacknowledging dis that you lied. Right. I'm yeah. not disacknowledging that I was addicted, horribly addicted. Mm. But if that's the final word on Odie and Bob, then let's just close shop and right. head straight to hell. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a different way. Yeah. Got to be a different way. And so um, uh, it's important that I think that we start with with this awareness of what it's like to go down this. What it does is it means that this is a human. This is a human. Your, your response, my, it's, it's what we as humans can do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next slide is what's to be done. Hang on till next week, because <laughs> we're going to talk more about this. I have a whole series of slides and exercises that will get into what's to be done about this. How do we keep ourselves out of this black hole that sucked you in, sucked mm -hmm. me in, and can do it in a moment's notice? Yeah. I noticed there's another comment up here. Let me respond to this comment, and we'll wind down for today, and we'll have part two of using shame as a signal to the self next week, okay? The comment is, you pointed out that rightful guilt gets tied into to toxic shame. And I appreciate the suggestions for how to deal with that. But I also experienced shame when I didn't do anything wrong. Maybe sometime you could talk about how to deal with that, thanks. Well, thank you for the comment or the question. Let me do respond to that right now, though I can only do uh, 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 kind of a, a, a beginning foray. This is a, um, important question in, a, in a, uh, a deep comment. There in the shame literature uh, of psychology, there's what's referred to as shame proneness. And owing to my own personal background, uh, I feel like I'm one of these people that's very shame prone. Not everybody is. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are vulnerabilities for me so that I can, I can uh, for example, I cannot do something wrong. I'll give you an example. I can just do less than my uh, high standards would set for me. Mm -hmm. So I can even, I, it's not necessarily a failure, I just didn't reach my standards for myself and I can feel like a complete failure like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I've had to work with this my entire life. The example I've given here before is in high school I got all A's. I was the valedictorian in high school. Right. I got very attached to not getting A's, uh, not getting B's. And then in college I did the same thing. I got all A's through college. Who does that? So I was a valedictorian in college and I started in graduate school, my first year in graduate school, and I happened to be in class with everybody who had been valedictorians in their high school and college. So there were 25 students from around the country, and they were all the best students in their classes. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the first year, I was the best student in that class. Mm -hmm. I was still valedictorian material. And the thought came to me is that I can't afford to get a B. And so the whole thing began to be my escape or my antidote to shame. Mm -hmm. And it created a crisis for me, and the crisis was this. I thought to myself, Bob Weathers, have you ever had an original thought in your mind ever? Because what I found that I could do is I could study for tests. If you're my teacher, mm -hmm. I can study for tests and give you what you want. Mm -hmm. If I have to write a paper, I get to know you well enough in terms of what you want. I can do that, but that actually wipes out my originality because mm -hmm. I won't risk saying something that you won't give me an A for. Why? Because I can't afford to get a B because I'd feel so ashamed of myself. <laughs> And so in between my first and second years in graduate school, I was in a six-year doctoral program. The summer of that 
between those, I remember it was close the bell. I made a resolution to myself that I was going to stop doing that. Mm-hmm. And it was harder than hell to yeah. do that. So yeah. I came back in fall of my second year in graduate school, and I started writing what I really thought. And I started getting B's and C's. I actually failed one class. I mean, this is like <laughs> craziness. Yeah. I had one faculty member say they were praying for me. Wow. And geez, to go from getting A's to having a faculty member think that you're so bad that you need their prayers. <laughs> and I stuck with it. I stuck with yeah. it. I stuck with it. And I'm still vulnerable to that because you can imagine how deeply that runs. Yeah. That, that it wasn't about failing. I mean, getting a B is not failing, except to me it was. I had such unrelentingly high standards. And I realized if I was to develop any kind of originality, if I was really to contribute why I'm on this planet, it wasn't going to come on this path. Mm. And so I had to court what for me would be disaster, which would be getting an A minus. Yeah. And I got a lot worse than A minuses. <laughs> that's for doggone sure. That reminds me of uh, what we were talking about earlier about um, being accepted into a community. Yes. You know, yeah. and uh, that also makes me think of, um, I'm sure a lot of a lot of people experience this in high school. I've, I experienced it myself too, but wanting to be a part of a group mm-hmm. and then knowing what they like and mm-hmm. so having to yeah. basically change some part of you yes. to try to yeah. fit in yeah. to yeah. be a part of that group. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a good way, it's a good way of responding to this question. I'm going back and read it. Rightful guilt gets tied into toxic shame. But what about if I experienced shame when I didn't do anything wrong? You didn't do anything yeah, wrong. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't do anything wrong except that I, well, let's talk about this for a second, except for the fact that you and I both gave up ourselves. Yeah. And so the tragedy of this is that I can I can be right or good or smart. Mm-hmm. I can do that. And give up the pearl of great price is mm-hmm. the way the Bible talks about it. Yeah. And the pearl of great price would be Odie's unique uh, contribution to the world, mm-hmm. why yeah. God has you here. Mm-hmm. And the same for me. The root of the word genius, it comes from Latin. It's the same root of the word genus, like mm-hmm. species. Mm-hmm. And so our genius is being our genus, being our species. And it's like I was aware. It took me all those years, you guys. <laughs> it took me all those years to between my first and second year in graduate school to realize that I was getting good grades, but it was at the expense of my genus, mm. at, the, at the expense of my species. Right. And at some point, you had to make a decision. Am I going to continue to meld to this group? If yeah. it means lopping off your arms and your legs, it's a great price. Right. And all of us are faced with that existential decision. Yeah. And so there's all kinds of ways. In fact, one of the authors that's written about this is Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. Yeah. And he introduces the term there. We're not going to go far with this here, but he introduces the term existential guilt. Mm. I should feel guilty if I hurt your feelings, if I step on your foot. Right. But he says there's a different kind of guilt, and it's when I deny myself. Mm. And I should feel bad about that. And I didn't for the longest time until I did. Yeah. And then when I did, I had to deliberate for a long time, probably the better part of a year, am I willing to take the dive? Mm. I love the way that the existential uh, uh, philosopher talked about this, Soren Kierkegaard. He and Friedrich Nietzsche are the two founders of existential philosophy in the 19th century. Soren Kierkegaard was a a, a Christian minister as well as a deep philosophical thinker. And I'll share this image with you uh, in closing. We'll have some other images next week, (laughs) but you'll have to come back for that. He had this image that all of us are knights 
on horses. If you think of a medieval knight, we're all mm -hmm. knights on horses. And we come up to the edge of whatever we've done, fitting into a group, getting all A's, Bob. We come up to the edge of a cliff on our horse, and we have one of two choices. We can jump off the edge with our horse into what he called the abyss. That's, that's what feels like the abyss. You're right. giving up terra firma, yeah. leaping into this. And he called the individual that takes the horse off the edge, he called that individual the knight of faith. Mm. That's, willing to, that's a willingness to trust God, trust the universe, to support you as you're leaping into what feels like the emptiness. Mm. Uh, this image came up to me in one of the Indiana Jones movies. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Where I think they have to walk off a cliff and oh, you're yeah. walking into yeah. an invisible bridge, <laughs> but you can't do it. You can't, get, you can't access the invisible bridge until you leap onto it. Right. It looks like you're going to fall to your death. Yeah. I always thought that was Kierkegaardian. <laughs> okay. So that's the knight of faith, the one who takes the leap into the abyss yeah. and then finds support. That's good. But the alternative, which has lacerated into my consciousness since graduate school, is that the alternative is to walk up to the edge, look at that, realize what you're going to give up in terms of approval of friends, mm. look at what I'm going to give up in terms of my being addicted to getting A's. Yeah. And I can't possibly do that. So I turn the horse around. And Kierkegaard's term for that individual is the knight of infinite resignation. Mm. This is a great term, the knight of infinite resignation. And every one of us faces that. And that's what Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, was talking about. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist from Vienna that uh, spent most of World War II in concentration camps. Yep. And he was one of the few that survived that. Mm -hmm. He wrote about his experience there. And he said, the only individuals who survived the horrendous conditions of Dachau and Treblinka and Buchenwald was they had some reason for living. Mm. If it was to help another person or do the right thing, or survive for their family's sake or whatever. Those people survived and everybody else died. Mm. And so he came out of that and wrote this book. I highly recommend the book. And in that book, he talks about existential guilt being the thing, if I defy myself, it's death dealing to me. Mm. Whereas if I obey that inner directive, then it's life giving. Yeah. And that's really what we're talking about here in terms of, uh, and this, this question really gets at the nuance that I can experience shame or existential guilt when I haven't done anything wrong other than not being true to my deepest self. Yeah. I hope this addresses at least in part the question. There's much, much more to it. Another angle that we could take, and we won't because we don't have time today, would be to look at this from a developmental perspective. It's possible to have so much developmental trauma in our lives in mm -hmm. terms of being really seen and valued that we go into life extremely prone to shame, mm -hmm. even when we haven't done anything wrong because we're imagining it. You might have the example I talked about earlier when I began to see everybody looking at me as if they're judging me. Mm -hmm. Talk about paranoia. Yeah. And they're not. Yeah. I haven't done anything wrong but I'm seeing that and it becomes my reality. Well, imagine a child that's traumatized from birth on with criticism, with disavowal, with, uh, with, uh, with neglect, how hard it is for that child to move into the world uh, with any kind of self-confidence. And mm -hmm. so they're gonna be shamed by virtue of never having any other feedback than shaming feedback. Yeah. And so that's a whole nother angle that we could go. I hope that that's uh, suggestive to you. Um, I, the, the, the book I recommended by, uh, by Viktor Frankl is a good start on that. Another book that I recommend for you if you're up for reading a little bit more uh, uh, challenging material is by Pat DeYoung. I think maybe the person who sent in this question might be familiar with this book. <laughs> Pat DeYoung's book, which is on understanding and treating chronic shame. It's the most uh, thorough recent book in psychology that I know that looks at the various uh, tributaries that feed into shame 
to where we can be ashamed in our lies without any good outer reason. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of good inner reason developmentally. Yeah. She does a fantastic job of looking at that. And I'll have to read this book, The Upside of Shame, to see if it's also helpful. So I'm not recommending it yet. Okay. <laughs> Odie, thank you today for participating. You're thank welcome. all of you who thank shared you. questions and comments today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We're exactly halfway through what we had intended, which means it was a great success. Yeah. I'm really happy about that. <laughs> we'll come back next week for part two of what we can do to redeem shame in terms of how can we find a rightful relationship to our guilt that changes us for the better, moves us towards each other, and not be banished from human connection and not be stuck in our own mortal shame, which, will, which is a killing energy. So I wish that you'll come back. If you liked what you saw today, go back and see previous podcasts. Also, like us online. Austin, like us online uh, at, at uh, Facebook, uh, Ask Addiction Specialist, also YouTube, also Beginnings Treatment Center, and invite your friends to come back and join us. We'll be coming back next week. We'll finish this piece next week. I'll be gone the following week. I'll be speaking to the American Pharmacists Association, addressing uh, that group on opioid addiction. Very honored to be going there. I'll be gone in two weeks. And when we come back, we're going uh, to go deeply into an exercise on self-forgiveness that really is kind of the cherry on top of the sundae here. We've been discussing shame, guilt from every angle, and we'll be fleshing this out more next week. And then we'll go into an exercise that will hopefully give us some tools for rooting out shame in our own lives uh, personally. So hope that you'll stick with us. I'll see you next week. Odie, thanks again. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye-bye for now, everybody. See you. Have a good week.